you to go to uh, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. I'm going to uh, I'm going to start tonight where I left off three weeks ago, and uh, and I got to do this because I told Brother Herb that I would I would get to this, and today's the tonight's the night I get to it on the marriage of the Lamb. <clears throat> We've been thinking about heaven and thinking about our future, and it is a glorious future, and it's going to be filled with celebratory events. And we will rejoice with Christ with a, with a joy that's hard to speak. It's in our future. And we are, though we enjoy serving him down here now, and we want to use every opportunity now and extend our life as long as we can, but when we get there, it's going to be far, far greater. One of the events in the future that we're going to be involved in is called the marriage of the Lamb. Several passages reveal that the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church is the relationship of that of a bridegroom with a bride. John the Baptist said it like this, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. John, saw himself, John the Baptist saw himself as the friend of the bride, or what we would call the best man, and Jesus being the groom, and Jesus had a bride, has a bride, it's called the church. Paul, in the book of Romans, said this, that ye should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead. And that's Jesus Christ, the one raised from the dead. We are married unto him. He said to the Corinthians, for I have espoused you to an one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So we are given to Christ as a virgin. We are married to him. And probably the most well-known of the New Testament passages that deals with this, Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to just go to the end of the, the chapter. Uh, we're talking about a husband love your wife as Christ loved the church. And, and you get to the end of that passage. And for this call shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. That's what he was really talking about. But he used the relationship of a husband and a wife, and a husband loves his wife, to talk about the relationship of Christ and Christ loving the church. At the rapture, Jesus Christ is coming back as the bridegroom, and he's going to get his bride and take his bride home to heaven. Now, in the New Testament, uh, there is the New Testament era marriages, well known by the Jews of that era. It was a part of their life experience. And that marriage is, is used in Scripture to teach us some things about us and God and Christ coming to get us. In a New Testament marriage, there were basically three parts, three elements to the marriage. And the first was betrothal. Betrothal was a legally binding engagement. It was made between the parents of both the man and the woman. They, the parents signed this betrothal contract. See, the parents were wise enough to know that 
to try to build a marriage on the flutters and the flurries of romantic love at best was a dubious gamble. And so they didn't make their choices that way. They looked at family values, standards, morals, beliefs. They looked for solidarity between the husband's, the man's family and, and the woman's family. Something that was some kind of cohesive dynamic that could be used to, to build a strong marriage on, a lasting relationship between husband and wife. And so betrothal was a very serious and important part of a marriage. Then there was the presentation element, a pre-wedding time of festivities that led up to the actual wedding itself. You see, the betrothal would take place, the groom would go and prepare a place where they were going to live. Might be a uh, uh, building off of his, his parents' house or maybe off on their own, but he's preparing a place and then he's going to come and get his bride. And he takes her to these pre-wedding festivities. They, they could last a few days or they could last a week. Well, if it was a king or a, a very wealthy leader in the nation, a wedding festivity could last for several weeks. Imagine how expensive that would be. You know, weddings are expensive as it is, and that happens all within a few hours on one day. But, boy, for it to go on for a month, had to have a lot of money for that. Who's the center of attention at a wedding? It is the bride. But in the New Testament wedding, it was the groom. He would present his bride to his guests at these presentation festivities. She was still a virgin because... The legally binding betrothal contract required that. She and her espoused husband still lived in their own homes apart from one another. The bridegroom would go to the bride's house, get her and her maidens or her wedding attendants, and escort them back to his house where the presentation of the bride would happen and the festivities would take place. The wedding guests would come and meet the bride and meet the family of both bride and groom, see her dressed in her wedding attire, talk with the families, have a meal and a ceremony. And the ceremony was the last part. You had the betrothal and the presentation and then the ceremony, which was the actual exchanging of the vows. The friend of the bride, the best man, would take the bride's hand and take the groom's hand and clasp her hand in, in his hand, and then they would exchange their vows. And once the vows were exchanged, the guests would leave the house. And if they didn't go quickly enough, the friend of the bride would make sure they left. Because the last part of the, of the marriage was the consummation. And the consummation and the vows were the main event of the marriage. This was familiar imagery to the people in the Bible. This is what their experience was. And the Lord used that to teach about his relationship to the church. And that's why Paul said that I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We belong to him. And we should be pure and holy as his chaste virgin. You know, the greatest pain that a man could have would be when it came time for the bride's presentation and he couldn't present her 
as a chaste virgin. And that was what Joseph struggled with because Mary was found to be with child while they were betrothed. She was found to be with child and Joseph knew he was not the father. And it took the intervention of God to help him to understand that she was supernaturally impregnated and she was going to give birth to a savior. One day we were betrothed to Christ when we got saved and he's coming back to get us. He's preparing a place. In fact, he told the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come again. And Jesus is coming back to get us and take us to the home that he's prepared for us. So, so, and when he takes us back to his home, to heaven, there's going to be the marriage of the Lamb. The Lamb of God married to us. The timing of the marriage is this. It's between the rapture and the second coming. There's a period of seven years between the rapture of the church when he comes to get us and takes us to heaven, and then at the second coming we come back with him, and during that seven years, sometime in that time frame, is the marriage of the Lamb. Revelation 19, did you turn there? Look with me in verse 1. Revelation 19, verse 1. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. Here's an event now taking place in heaven. And go down to verse 4. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God and sat, worshipped God that sat on the throne. In heaven, before the throne of God, that's the scene of what's taking place here. Now go over to verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and the wife hath made herself ready. This marriage is taking place in heaven where God is at before his throne, and the church is there. We are there. Verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So here we are as righteous saints standing before God in heaven, married to Jesus Christ. This is this righteousness that we have is the righteousness of Christ but there's a lot of Bible scholars that also believe that part of this righteousness are the things that we are rewarded for at the judgment seat of Christ. All of the wood, hay, and stubble gets burned up, and the gold and silver and precious stones last and is, is, were rewarded for that. And part of this righteousness and reward is this fine linen that we stand before Christ in. Now, where is, is the marriage of the Lamb is in heaven. Who's involved in the marriage of the Lamb? It's an event that evidently, it evidently involves only Christ and the church. Jesus loved the church and he gave himself for it. This is a deeply intimate event, this marriage with Christ. The church is presented to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any blemish. It's hard for us to fathom how much God loves us. We just can't comprehend it. We believe it because he says it. We'll experience it we'll, in greater understanding when we get to heaven. This is a symbolic event. 
this marriage. It's, it's, the, it's the union of us to Christ. And when this he takes place, when he takes us back to heaven and we're married to him, so shall we ever be with the Lord. There will be no parting at that time. So the bride is the church. The church are the New Testament saints that are raptured and resurrected and rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ and standing there before the throne. Well, what about Old Testament saints? What about Adam and Eve? And Enoch, who walked with God and was not because God took him. Or Noah, a just man. What about Israel? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samuel, Ruth, David, and a host of saints of the Old Testament. What about tribulation saints? Those that miss the rapture, so they're not in heaven, but they hear the gospel during the tribulation period, during those seven years, they hear that tribulation, they hear that message, they trust Christ as Savior. They're not in heaven at the marriage of the Lamb. What, what about these other people? Those raised at the rapture are the ones that are called the dead in Christ. They died and they were resurrected at the rapture. Some of us, hopefully, in our lifetime, Live and remain, we'll be caught up together with those that are, have died in Christ. There are no passages in the Bible that refer to Old Testament saints as dead in Christ. The marriage of the Lamb are with those New Testament saints of the church age. I want you to go to Daniel chapter 12. Verse 1, Daniel if you have a hard time finding it, I'll just read it to you. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says this, And at that time shall Michael stand up a great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, that's the tribulation period, such as never was seen, uh, uh, such as never was since there was a nation even to the same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book. That's the book of the saved. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Here's a resurrection. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Israel's going to face this time of tribulation. It's a time of trouble. We call it the tribulation period. It's unprecedented. Jesus referred to this exact passage when he was preaching his, Olivet, his, his sermon on the, on the Mount of Olives. We call it the Olivet Discourse. When he's speaking to his disciples. And he quoted this passage, and, and Jesus said this in Matthew 24. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. At the tribulation, at that time, Israel is going to be delivered from annihilation of the great tribulation. Those dead will be resurrected, according to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. The resurrection of the Old Testament saints will occur at the end of the tribulation. The marriage of the Lamb is taking place in heaven before that time. 
The resurrection of the tribulation saints will occur at that time as well. You know, if you go, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 20 here in just a few minutes, but it says of the people that are martyred during the tribulation period, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So they have to be resurrected to live and reign with Christ a thousand years. At the end of the tribulation, these martyred saints, tribulation saints, are resurrected. Just like the Old Testament saints are resurrected after the time of Jacob's trouble, which would be the end of the tribulation period. So Old Testament saints and martyred tribulation saints, they get raised at the end of the tribulation period. They're not part of the marriage of the Lamb taking place in those festivities because that's happening before the tribulation is over. Look with me in Revelation 19, verse 9. Still in this passage dealing with the marriage of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, Write... Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. You have the marriage of the Lamb in verse 7. You have the marriage supper of the Lamb in verse 9. And in verse 9, people have to be called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You say, well, that's the bride of Christ. No, 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 no. The bride is never invited to her wedding. Okay, you got that? The bride invites to the wedding. She doesn't get invited to her own wedding. The called in verse 9 are not, it's not the bride of Christ. Well, this, this scene in, in verse 9, this seems to be in heaven. It is, it is in heaven. So here's what a host of Bible scholars believe is happening here. That this calling to the marriage supper of the Lamb, this is anticipatory. It's, they're anticipating the resurrection at the end of the tribulation and the inviting to the marriage supper. The marriage happens in heaven. Christ comes back to earth. He, there's this anticipation that these people are going to be resurrected and participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So he comes back to earth. Old Testament saints are resurrected. Tribulation saints are resurrected. They're called to the marriage supper. And the marriage supper involves Jesus and the bride, us, and those that were called to join Jesus and the bride. And we have a marriage supper together. So have you heard that there's, there's no marriages in heaven? Well, there really is one. <laughs> not ours, I mean, not us to each other, but us to Jesus Christ. So there, there is one marriage. The marriage of the, of the Lamb is an intimate event that takes place in our future. We're going to be there, folks. You will be married to Christ before the throne of God. Talk about an intimate time of rejoicing that's in our future. And then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth created. And I'm going to go, okay, that's finishing up last, last uh, time's lesson. Herb, you got that? Does that all make sense to you? All right, all right, we got it. So now, now we're going to go to the next thing. Following 
that event, the close of the tribulation period. You've, you've got to go to chapter 20. Now, we've been in chapter 19 of Revelation. Got to go to chapter 20. And here's the way this begins. This is the close of the tribulation period. <clears throat> and I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. It's like the, it's like the author is making sure you, you know who this guy is. <laughs> Calls him the serpent. Well, that goes back to Revelation chapter 3. And he's called the devil and he's called Satan. And he bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. This is a temporary confinement of Satan in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And while he is bound there for a thousand years, Jesus Christ is going to rule on this earth with a rod of iron, chapter 19 says. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Oh, wait a minute. Satan's not around. You ever heard the... Who, who was the comedian that used to say, the devil made me do it? Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. Always blaming the devil. That won't work during the, during the millennium because he's not there. He's bound for a thousand years. But there still has to be the ruling with a rod of iron. There has to be a tight fisted, firm, righteous reign on this earth, even though Satan is not here. Why? Because we have a sin nature. We have a sin nature. People, they didn't want Jesus the first time. They killed him the first time. They won't want him at this time during the millennial kingdom. Many won't want him. When he was here in the flesh, he loved, he healed, he taught truth, he forgave sins, he was kind, he was patient. Even children were drawn to him because of his kind nature. And what did the people do? They mocked him, they spit in his face, they plucked out his beard, they nailed him to the cross. He only did good, and that's what they did to him. It makes absolute sense that during the millennial kingdom, he will rule with the rod of iron because people will be there with sin natures. Not the ones that came back from heaven, you know, that, that their sin nature is, is gone, eradicated. But on earth, the ones that survived the tribulation period and they move into the millennium, they're in their natural body, they're sinners, saved sinners, but they will have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and the earth will be repopulated for a thousand years and with people, every one of which will need to trust Christ as Savior and multitudes will not. And they will rebel against him. And that's why there's a, a, a reigning with the rod of iron. Now in verse 4 it says, And I saw thrones and they sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. That, that the beast there is the Antichrist. And you know, he, he insisted on a mark on the, the, 
the back of the hand or the forehead and they refuse to take it and they are going to lose their life for that. But it says at the end of verse 4, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So they have to be resurrected to live and reign with Christ. Now in verse 5, the next verse, it says, but the rest of the dead lived not again till the thousand years were finished. Now, do you write in your Bible? If you do, take a pen and put a parenthesis in front of the, f- the word but, at the first word of, chapter, uh, of verse 5. But, put an open parenthesis, a beginning parenthesis. But, the rest of the dead lived not again till the thousand years were finished. Put the closing parenthesis. That is a parenthetical statement. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, but the rest of the dead lived not again till the thousand years were finished. And then he goes back, this is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is what happens in verse 4. The rest of the dead that lived not again till the thousand years were finished, that's the second resurrection. Now, do we have this chart? Can I see this chart here? We're in the church age right now. We're waiting for the rapture. Here's the resurrections. We we were talking about the Old Testament saints. They're going to be resurrected at the end of the tribulation period. The tribulation saints, the ones that die in the tribulation for their faith in Christ, they're going to be raised at the, the end of the tribulation. But when it says the rest of the dead live not again till the thousand years are finished. It's talking about over here, the rest of the dead, the the second resurrection, the end of verse 4. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Now, it's not the first, it's not the first in time because there's multiple resurrections before the resurrection in verse 4. You have selected believers that were resurrected when Jesus Christ was crucified when the graves were open the saints came out they were they were resurrected uh, you have you have believers resurrected in the old testament as well you have other believers in the new testament resurrected such as Lazarus was resurrected uh, Peter res- raised uh, Tabitha I think her name was yes son of the widow of Nain there's, there's multiple resurrections in, during, the, during the New Testament time when the disciples and Jesus were ministering. The dead in Christ are resurrected at the rapture. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And then Old Testament and tribulation saints, they're resurrected at the end of the tribulation. But all of these, this is called the first resurrection. It's the first kind of resurrection. It's a resurrection of life. There is another resurrection, a second, which is the resurrection of death, to death. And that is found in the book of Daniel chapter 12. We read it earlier. Don't turn there again, but let me read it to you. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. Some will resurrect to everlasting life. And it says, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Some will be resurrected to contempt, and you're going to see what happens to them. 
Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 and 15 says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, by the, in, by the time you get to the end of chapter 20, what you have is the end of the unsaved. Satan is gone. The Antichrist is gone. His false prophet is gone. Unbelievers have been resurrected to stand before the great white throne judgment and to give an account of their life. And they'll stand there at that great white throne judgment. The books will be open and the book of life. The book of life is evidence that they're not written there. And their books are going to be open, a record of their life, the, the works of their life. And the Bible says they're going to be judged according to their works, according to the things. This isn't a faith judgment. It's not there, they're not there to determine whether they're saved or not. They're there because they're not saved. And they're judged according to their works. Everyone that has opposed God is gone. Those that have cursed him and shaken their fist at him and mocked him and in the face of clear and irrefutable evidence have denied him and, they have, and those that have said, we don't want him to rule over us, God will give them exactly what they've wanted. A place where he does not exist. A place where his presence is not. He's going to give them what they have wanted all along. I guess you can think of it like this. God is a gentleman. He will not force them. He will not force people to live for all eternity in his presence when they do not want him. He won't make them do that. They don't want him. He will let them have what they want, a place where he does not exist, where his goodness does not exist. It's a place that he called hell. But they can't say we're in hell because you wanted us here. Oh. He died on the cross. He did everything he could short of forcing them against their will to accept him. He did not force that. He wants them saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why does God want repentance? Because when we repent of our sin and we do right and we trust, that's where there's blessing and that's where there's peace and that's where there's hope. You know, most of us have had children. When we corrected our children, it's not because we hated them. When we slapped their hand when they were going to touch something that would burn them and, and, and we... We corrected them when they wanted to go out in the street and, a, and cars are zinging by back and forth. We didn't correct because we hate them. We protected them and we trained them and we disciplined them because we loved them. Why are we that way? Because that's exactly the way God is. 
He loves us. And so he correct and he trained and he pointed and he implored people to accept him. But when they harden their neck, we will not have him reign over us. He'll say, okay, okay. It's not what he wants, but he won't force people against their will. The end of chapter 20 is, is the, the end of the bad news. And then chapter 21 starts with the beginning of eternity. It's a new beginning, a new creation, a creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, folks, to what extent does God destroy the old and make the new, when he makes the new? To what extent does the current heaven and earth that's part of our experience. To what extent does that pass away when God creates a new heaven and a new earth? Now, there's, there are a couple of uh, thoughts on this, different opinions, from really conservative Bible scholars that search the Scriptures and love God, and, and they see it a little different. Here's one school of thought. It's a complete and utter destruction of it all. No trace of God's original creation remains. And they'll look to passages like 2 Peter chapter 3, which says, And the heavens and the earth shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth and all the works that are therein shall be burned up. And in the same passage in 2 Peter, And the heavens shall be on fire and dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So it, it makes it sound like he completely obliterates it all. And then there's another opinion. The second understanding is that the current heaven and the current earth experiences some kind of recreation, renewal, transformation. And they'll look to verses such as Ecclesiastes, one generation passeth away and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Or Psalm 78, and he built his sanctuary like high places, like the earth which he hath established forever. Now, can it be, can it be, that as in salvation, we are, the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We are, we're completely, completely new. Almost. I mean, you still look like you did before you got saved. I mean, you still have your body, and, and when you get a resurrected body, it's going to be a new, perfect resurrection body. Will it have any semblance to the old? Well, what was Jesus' resurrection body like? They resur when he was resurrected, they, um, they could recognize him, not initially, but they, they recognized him as Jesus. They touched him. They listened to him talk. Uh, Mary grabbed onto him and, and held onto him and hugged him. He said to Thomas, reach forth and, and touch the nail. He, he had the, the nail prints in his 
He's, he has his resurrected body, but he has the nail scars. He has his resurrected body, but he's got the, the scar in his side where the, the, the spear was thrust through. He's, he's a, he has a new resurrected body, but yet there's some continuity with the old body. Now, here's what's hard. It's hard to know that how that continuity works. How, how different is it and how much the same is it? And my question is, could it be similar? Could the new heaven and new earth be similar to the continuity that exists between the body that we were given and the resurrection body that we're going to be given? We know there was a strong continuity in Christ's resurrection body. Certainly there's going to be a dissolving and the elements shall melt with the fervent heat and God is going to destroy all taint of sin in his creation. It's gone. He wipes it all away. Now, I don't often quote John Piper because of his Calvinism, um, but he wrote the following. When in Revelation 21.1 and 2 Peter 3.10... When it says that the present earth and heavens shall pass away, it does not have to mean that they go out of existence, but may mean that there will be such a change in them that their present condition passes away. We might say the caterpillar passes away and the butterfly emerges. There is going to be a real passing away, and he's going to destroy, God is going to destroy all traces of sin in his, in his creation. But there could be some continuity. The new earth may have some close resemblances to the earth as we know it. But we don't know, we don't know where that line would be and, and how much continuity there would be. But we will have a new earth and we will live together with him on a new earth. Now, I know we think in terms of we die, we go to heaven, we live in heaven forever. We really die and go to heaven and come back and live forever on earth. A new earth that has a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem which comes down. And we're going to look at that more the next time we get together. What is that new heaven and new earth like? What, how does God describe it in the closing of his book? Just some lessons for us. God has our good at heart. He has our good at heart. The marriage supper of the Lamb was, is an intimate union because he loves us. He wants us close to his heart. He wants all people close to his heart, but they have to want that and come. The intimacy that God That, that we can have with God, it doesn't have to begin at the marriage supper. We can have close intimacy with God now. We can saturate ourselves with his word. We can spend time communicating with him in prayer and longing to be with him. We can pray to God throughout the day. We can talk to him throughout the day. We can develop relationship with God. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven to have an intimate relationship with the Creator. He wants us to have that now. And He's preparing a place for us that will thrill our heart. 
How many days did God spend in making Eden? Only a few. There's only a few days, the creation week, first two chapters of Genesis, a few days to make Eden where mankind would dwell in fellowship with him. But how long has he been working on the home that he's preparing for us? <laughs> 2,000 years. He's really putting out the effort to prepare a place for us. We can't fathom how wonderful it's going to be. But he's been nearly 2,000 years in preparing it. And it will come down and it'll be part of this new earth. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. While we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But when traveling days are over, not a shadow, not a sigh. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of him in glory. Will the toils of life repay? On, onward to the prize before us, soon his beauty will behold, will, will behold. Soon the pearly gates will open, we shall, we shall tread on streets of gold. When we all get to heaven, why don't we sing that song? Now, Roma, I forgot to call you today and give you, that's what the song we're going to sing, but I bet you can do it right off the top of your head. Let's everyone stand. We're going to close by singing, When We All Get to Heaven. What a day that's going to be when we, when we are there. So we're going to sing the song, and then Brother Dave is going to close us in a word of prayer. And God bless you. Have a wonderful second half of your week. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Pastor. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, We'll sing and shout the victory. While we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But when traveling days are over, not a shadow or a sigh. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of him in glory will the toils of life repay. When we all get to heaven, what a joy of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Last verse. Onward to the prize before us, soon his beauty will behold. 
Soon the pearly gates will open, we shall tread the streets of gold. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you give us a glimpse of heaven through your word. We pray that we'll take the teaching that Pastor Alstott gave us tonight and we will apply it to our lives and draw close to you. And for each one that's watching tonight via the internet or here in this auditorium, we pray that you'll be with us, keep us safe, and draw us together closely and show our love to one another and to those that we come in contact with through the week. For it's in Jesus, our precious Savior's name we pray. Amen. He is worthy of our praise. If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 41 this morning. If you don't have one, you can pull a phone out and find it anywhere online. Genesis chapter 41. Today we're going to see absolutely opposite pictures of a Bible character named Joseph. We're going to see him as a slave. We're going to see him as a prince, the prince of Egypt. Uh, do you remember a few years ago a show called Extreme Makeover? I know some really love that. Uh, once the makeover crew was done with them, some of the people were barely recognizable of their former self. And this is the kind of extreme makeover Joseph is going through. I mean, he went from the pit to a Potiphar's house. He went to prison, and then he ends up in the palace. And there are some very practical principles that we can learn from the Bible, from Joseph's life. And so my message, my message is entitled, How to Handle Adversity, how to handle prosperity. Would you please stand with me? I'll read just a few verses from Genesis chapter 41, beginning in verse 46. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. The food of the field which was round about every city laid he up in the same. And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea very much until he left numbering for it was without number. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of the famine. That's the seven years of coming famine which Asenath the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God, said he, hath made me forget all of my toil, my trouble, and all my father's house. And the name of the second called he Ephraim. For God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. May we pray together. Our Father, thank you. Thank you that we can always trust you, whether we be in a time of adversity, whether we be in a time of prosperity, that you are ever faithful to us. And Lord, I do pray. I pray for those that might be going through a difficult time today. God, may they look to you. May they lean upon you. 
And I pray for those who are in a time of blessing, that they will take and share those blessings generously with others. And now, Father, I pray if there be one that is not sure if heaven is their home, they're not sure that if they died today, they'd go to heaven. May the Spirit of God take the Word of God, draw them to yourself. Help them to know that they've come to a place, a family of God, where they can be a part of your family, not by joining a church, not by getting baptized, but by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, as a Christian, let me tell you about a wonderful day in your life. Now, some of you have already had this experience, and others, you're going to have it sometime in the future. In fact, some of you may possibly have it today, but it is the day that you realize that the Bible is not some out-of-date, old, dusty book that has no relevance for today. It's the day that you discover, rather, that the Bible is the bread of life. Uh, the Bible is food for your soul. The Bible is a flashlight in the darkness. The Bible is the roadmap for life. The Bible is your GPS for the big decisions of your life. You know, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who said, He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Job, uh, Job, that saint said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job 23, verse 12. That's how precious the Bible becomes to a Christian who discovers that it is the very Word of God. And I'm so glad that when I became a Christian as a teenager, as a teenager, 15-year-old teenager, I had a pastor and a youth pastor, and they taught me that the Bible was true, that the Bible was reliable, that the Bible could help me as a new Christian. Not all pastors teach that. You don't have to go very far from this church building, and there are pastors who cast doubt on the accuracy and the authority of the Word of God. But here, you, you're going to hear the truth. The Bible is true. God wrote the Bible, and the Bible is alive and has power to be able to help us in our life. I learned as a teenager how I could know God personally by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died upon a cross, that He rose again the third day, the only one who has the power to conquer death, and that He offers that gift to you and I. I learned as a teenager how to be forgiven. I learned how to forgive others. I learned how to walk by faith in the hard times. I learned how to be generous in the good times. And I'm still learning how important it is to, to yield what I want, uh, to yield what I like, to yield what I want to demand, and yield to the promptings and the desires of the Holy Spirit of God. I learned what it is like that He wants all of us to grow the precious fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Now, Joseph is going to experience these extremes of adversity and prosperity. 
It sounds a little bit like the Apostle Paul when he was in a prison in Rome and he's writing different churches. He writes the church in Greece at Philippi and he says, I I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I know what it's like to be hungry and what it's like to be full. And the Apostle Paul says, I want you to consider these extremes. I know how to get along with very little but I also know how to live in prosperity. You know, as we think of Paul, we we have a picture in our mind. We can kind of picture him on his missionary journeys, and and he's making tents uh, to be able to support himself. And we we picture him shivering with a fever of malaria, and we picture him being persecuted and stoned, and, and we picture him being thrown into a dungeon after being beaten. We rarely picture him in prosperity. We rarely picture him in abundance. He never says that it's more spiritual to be poor than it is to be rich. But what he does say is, I've learned. I've learned to be content. If I have a lot, I've learned to be content. If I have a little. And this is what Joseph is going to experience. And I wonder today about you. Have you learned contentment? Have you learned joy and peace no matter what your financial situation, no matter what your health situation, no matter what your your family situation? You learn as you grow closer to Christ, you learn contentment. And Paul said, poverty, abundance. Joseph said the same thing. So how to handle adversity. For 13 years, Joseph endured hardships. As a child, as a teenager, he was the favored son uh, among the uh, a dozen boys, and he had the, the coat of many colors. But then one day it all changed. His brothers wanted to murder him. They cast him into a pit. Rather than being murdered, they sold him as a slave. And he goes off uh, down into Egypt, and he is sold again uh, as a slave. His life became filled with mistreatment. Slavery, rejection, false accusation, and here you see finally prison. I guarantee you that Joseph will be at the top of every church prayer list. All pray for Joseph. He's going through such deep trials. You know, we care about those who are suffering and should. They find themselves in great pain. One commentator of the Bible wrote, Between Joseph being sold and being promoted, 13 years have elapsed. 13 years of nightmare, hardship, setback, frustration. So how did Joseph come out on the other side of this trial with only physical scars and his faith is intact? Well, here's how. How to handle adversity? You you believe in the sovereignty of God. You believe in the sovereignty of God. Now, what do you think is the most important thing about you? Is it, is it your occupation? Is it, is it how you look? Uh, is it, is it uh, how much money you have? Is it your family? What's the most important thing about you? Pastor A.W. Tozer authored more than 60 books, two became classics, The Pursuit of God and the Knowledge of the Holy. Listen to what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So I want to ask you today, what comes into your mind when you think about God? 
What do you believe about God? Do you believe the truth of what the Bible says about God? When you're in trouble, when you're in a trial, you can believe in the sovereignty of God. You say, Pastor, what is that? What is that? As the ruler of the universe, God is free and has the right to do whatever he wants. The Bible teaches us that God is the creator of all the universe. He is the savior of our souls. So we learn things about God. We learn things about, about God through creation. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Uh, uh, 23 couples went to uh, the getaway weekend, and we stood there at the shore of the Atlantic Ocean, and you look out at this vast ocean, and you have to say, wow. God is great. God is big. God is intelligent. Uh, God is amazing. So Romans 1 tells us about the power of God. Romans 2, 15 tells us that we have a conscience, and it tells us that we, we have sinned against God and we feel guilt, so God is just and God is holy. So creation, conscience, but then we have a Bible. And when we come to the Bible, we learn more about God that we wouldn't know through creation and conscience. The Bible tells us all we need to know about God. He is holy. He is loving. He is eternal. He is sovereign. He is immutable. That means he is unchanging. He is just. He is righteous. He is good. He is kind. He is merciful. He is omnipotent means he's all-powerful he is omniscient that means he knows everything he is omnipresent that means he is everywhere at once and the bible tells us that jesus is the only way to heaven he said i'm the way the truth and the life no man comes unto the father but by me so god is sovereign god knew about covid19 before it even came into existence God knows, he already knows, who's going to win the election and every election. God is ultimately controlling history, and the next Bible prophecy event to occur is called a rapture. Christians are taken to heaven. Seven years of tribulation described in Revelation chapter 6 to 19. And then the Bible says Jesus is coming back to this earth, and he is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem the capital of Israel, the capital of the world, and the Jews are going to be in the land, and we get to see Bible prophecy happening right before our eyes. God is sovereign. You can believe in the sovereignty of God. How to handle adversity? Secondly, trust in the promises of God. Joseph's father, Jacob, had two dreams given by God. Joseph had two dreams, and he believed they were God's promises. Though Joseph did not understand everything about God that we know about God, he, Joseph knew enough from creation, God is big and great. He knew enough from conscience that God was holy. He knew enough from his parents and his grandparents that God makes promises, and that he knew enough from the two dreams and promises that he had that one day he was going to be in a place of leadership. It's going to happen. He just doesn't know when it's going to happen. And so, it, so Joseph has to trust the promises of God. He, he can trust this invisible, eternal God. Joseph chooses a positive attitude. He knows the suffering's going to come to an end. He just doesn't know when. 
Is it going to be a year or five or a decade? Uh, and, and then that, uh, that butler to Pharaoh forgets him another two years go by. He knows it's going to come to an end, and that gave him hope. That gave him courage to endure. You know, ladies and gentlemen, you and I have so much more information about God than Joseph did. You and I have so many more promises of God than Joseph did. You and I are standing on the shoulders of the faithful of the ages. There's no reason that all of us here today cannot trust in the promises of God that will give us hope, that will give us courage, no matter what is ahead. I, I like how the, uh, uh, the songwriter Laura Story wrote, We pray for blessings. We pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. All the while, you hear each spoken need. Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know that you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? What if God allows trials and he's really bringing mercy to us? We can trust the promises of God. Uh, here's one. We can choose to become better, not bitter. Joseph practiced what we are taught in the New Testament by James. Count it all joy when ye fall into various kinds of trials and temptations, knowing trials grow your faith. They work patience to us. So God can use trials to grow and develop godly character and virtue in our lives. In just a short time, Joseph is going to have power, a power to take revenge. He, he will be able to take revenge upon his brothers or even that cupbearer, but he doesn't. He doesn't. What a contrast to Alexandra Dumas's famous novel and movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, the main character is Edmond Dantes. He is falsely accused of treason. He is imprisoned in that famous, infamous Chateau d'If where he is beaten mercilessly. But Edmund escapes. He finds a massive hidden treasure. He returns home, and he avenges himself of those who conspired to destroy him. And then in the end, there is some redemption to the story. Joseph is not like that. Uh, they could enslave and imprison Joseph's body, but not his spirit. Mistreatment does not make him bitter. Mistreatment does not make him angry. In fact, he uses every opportunity to be faithful and to be able to improve his managerial and his leadership skills that he will use in the future. So how to handle adversity. Don't, don't become bitter, become better. One more, don't waste your trial. Don't waste your trial. Don't waste your problems. Use it to help someone else. We find this in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. What, what a great description of God. 
the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in our tribulation, in our trial, in our trouble, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. These verses tell us some amazing things about God. Here they are. Number one, God is there for us in our trial. He is the God of all comfort. He'll not abandon us. He'll not leave us. Number two, God may use other people to bring comfort to us. Number three, God uses the trials in our life to prepare us to help others. And number four, God expects us. He expects us to help others. James he says that the trials of our life that we experience are custom designed to grow our faith and patience. They are the trials that God lets you have are as unique to you as your fingerprint. My trials are different from yours, yours are different from mine. But as we let God comfort us, as we let God help us, we are then to take that same grace, that same comfort, that same help we're to share it with others. We're to share it with others. So out of my past, out of my past, I can help children who lost a parent because I lost a parent. Out of my past, I can help people who grew up in an alcoholic home because I grew up in an alcoholic home. Out of my past, I can help men who have lost their wife to cancer, especially in ministry. That's my experience. Out of my past, I can help those going through a blended family because I've been through it twice. That's my past. But what about your past? What about your past? What about your trials? How has God helped you in your past? How can you take the help that God gave to you and for you to help someone else? Don't waste your trial. Use it to help someone else. How to handle prosperity. Here we go. Uh, first thing, letter A. When you are promoted, humbly thank God. Verse 41, Pharaoh said, See, Joseph, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. When, when Joseph uh, gave Pharaoh the interpretation of his dreams, Joseph kept the focus on God. Look with me back in verse 16. In verse 16, and Joseph answered Pharaoh and said, It is not in me. It's not me. Uh, God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Only God can bring you out of your dungeon. Only God can deliver you from your trials. Only God can reward you for faithfulness. And he will. Psalm 75, for promotion cometh not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. It comes from God. So any promotion, any blessing, any success, any joy you have ever experienced, it's from God. Without God's oversight of your life, you could have been born in a faraway land in a poverty-stricken home. Without God's oversight of your life, you could have been born with unimaginable handicaps. Or worse, you could have been aborted by your parents. We would be wise to give God the glory for any measure of success, any measure of blessings that we have and we enjoy. 
You know, as a church, as a church, we have been super abundantly blessed these many years. I, I just talked to a pastor yesterday, Pastor Chapel in California. Every Sunday, every Sunday, somebody from Los Angeles County comes to church, takes a picture, sends them a fine on Monday. Every week. It's happening in New Jersey. It's happening in New York. It's happening in uh, Nevada, California. We need to thank God for any blessing that we have. But, but all the credit and all the honor that we ever experience, it belongs to the Lord. Uh, someone somewhere designated October as Pastor Appreciation Month. And all of the pastors and their wives, we are thankful for the cards and the kindnesses and the prayers. But we know the appreciation belongs to the Lord. We cannot be faithful without you, without his grace, his power, and his help. I remember who I am. I remember where I came from. I remember the first midweek Bible study that we had uh, 36 years ago this summer. 7.30 came. Nobody showed up. The storm came in. I took my Bible, and I closed it, and I told my wife, well, I guess I'll just save this message for next week. And just at that moment, ding dong. And uh, Linda, if you just raise your hand. Uh, Linda came with her daughter, Joanna. Joanna is now our missionary to Greece. And then, uh, and then uh, another couple and a child came. We had five, plus my wife and I. Uh, people say, oh, the church is so big. I'm so used to a small church. Well, me too. <laughs> you know? oh, we had five in our first Bible study. Uh, that's a small church. And, and so, so I remember that. I, I remember where we have come from, and I remember what God has done. I, I remember uh, how, how frightened and how difficult it was to, uh, to be able to give devotions and to preach when I was going to Bible college and even as an as an intern, I, I remember as an intern preaching where I was so nervous that my mouth was so dry that my tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth for just about 30 minutes. People had a hard time. If you can imagine taking 10 cotton balls and putting them in your mouth and then trying to talk, please turn to Genesis chapter 41. And I got through that experience, and, and uh, I came up here to start the church, and, and that, that, that fear of public speaking just didn't, didn't go away. But every time I'd go back to Virginia, one of the deacons, he's now in heaven, but one of the deacons, he loved me, he prayed for me, as far as I know, every day until the day he died, Dewey Carr. I would meet him years to come, and he'd come, and he would tease me mercilessly. Hey, Pastor Wendell, how is it going? How's the Bible preaching going up here in Pennsylvania? And, and, you know, that was good for me. That was good for me because it made me remember that, that it was worse than how I remembered it. <laughs> it was bad. It was bad. And, and so when I started the church, Tic Tacs, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, Tuesday night Bible study. It was, and, and so I, I know who I am. And, you know, people are so kind. And they say things like, oh, Pastor, it's such a great message. And, and I say, well, that was not Scott Wendell. Because if it was Scott Wendell, it would sound like, please turn your Bible. That's, that's Scott Wendell. So what you hear is not Scott Wendell. You hear God. Back in those days, it was God and Tic Tac. Now it's just God. Uh, so I remember where I came from. You need to remember, too. You need to remember who you are. Uh, you need to be able to say, 
When I'm promoted, I want to humbly thank God because it comes from him. J. Oswald Sanders said, Not every man can carry a full cup. Sudden elevation frequently leads to pride and a fall. The most exacting test of all to survive is prosperity. So when you are promoted, thank God humbly. When you are promoted, use your authority and your influence to help others and not hurt them. Verse 40, Thou shalt be over my house, Pharaoh says to Joseph, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh set him over all the land of Egypt. Scholars write about this period of Egypt, and they say that it could be easily compared to, the, in the ancient world, to Babylon at its peak. It was a place of splendor and beauty. It was a place of advanced educational system, military might, unimaginable wealth. It's all at Joseph's fingertips. Add to that, Pharaoh gave him his signet ring, and he could make laws, and he could make policies. I mean, he was in charge. If ever a man could abuse his authority, if ever a man could do it and get away with it, it's Joseph. It's Joseph. But he was a man of integrity. He was a man of honesty. He was a man who used his power to help others. Clearly, millions in our country are outraged at the abuse by bad police officers, and we should be. If a man breaks the law, he should be brought to justice. Any citizen, any police officer, any government official, any candidate. The picture of Lady Justice is with a blindfold. You say, why, why? and the scales of justice in her hand because it is symbolic of the fact that no one is above the law. It is sinful for a police officer or a governor or a judge to break the law, to break God's law. And it's also sinful for a citizen to smash a store window, to burn a police car, to assault someone because of the color of their skin whether that color be white, black, yellow, brown. It makes no difference. Our country needs to hear the truth of God. Our country needs to follow the truth of God and God's laws. So you and I were to use our authority, were to use our influence to help others, not hurt them. So maybe you're a leader. Maybe you're a teacher, a boss. Maybe you're just on social media. You're to use your influence even over your friends. Use it for good. Use it for God. And do it now. So look what Joseph did. He prepared for the famine, verses 47 to 49. He collected the food. Uh, he had no desire to build up personal wealth, rather to prepare to save others. So how do you handle prosperity? Well, when you're promoted, humbly thank God, uh, when you're promoted, use your authority to help others not hurt. And then let her see, commit to stay faithful to God. Commit your life to be faithful to God. Now, the writer gives us some details that are interesting here about Joseph. And so we look with him at verse 45. Verse 45, Pharaoh called Joseph's name uh, Zaphnath, and he gave him to wife Asenath, 
the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. And Joseph went over all the land of Egypt. First of all, I want you to see, Joseph did not fall into the trap of polygamy. He had one wife. He was faithful to that one wife, and she bore him two sons. That's the second thing. Joseph named his two sons to honor God. Look with me in verse 51. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget all my toil. He proclaimed openly that God had made him forget all of his troubles. How thrilled he must have been after all he's been through to grab his wife's hand with that little baby and say, his name is Manasseh. God has Manassehed me. God is making me to forget all the pain of my past. What a joy. He's removed the sting of my past from my memory. And then verse 52, uh, he, he, the name of the second son he calls Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Ephraim, God has caused me to be fruitful, twice fruitful. What is he saying? He's saying, God has blessed me beyond measure in a place that seemed to bring only suffering. And so Joseph gave his children names that would reveal his commitment to stay faithful to God. And so every time he called their names, he was saying, Manasseh, God made me to forget my pain. Ephraim, God has blessed me abundantly. Well, hey, let, let's apply this here. All of us know that our brains have our memories etched there permanently. Now, some of us have a hard time recalling to memory some of the things that we know are there. Uh, yet Joseph said, God made me forget. What, 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 what's the point? Here's the point. The bad memories of our lives are lodged deep in our brains. But God, but God, but God is able to bring relief. God is able to make us forget the pain. God is able to take away that anguish of what happened. We know the memories are still there. In fact, Joseph is going to talk with his brothers about the event, but the pain is missing. The pain has been taken away. This is what God can do for you. Joseph will tell his brothers, see this boy here? See my oldest son? That's Manasseh. Because God has removed the sting of my past suffering. You know, it's a reminder for us. It's a reminder for us to be able to have some Manassehs in our life where we where we rather than want to take revenge, we want to get even with someone, the, the Reubens and the Judas and the Potiphar's wives. We want to get even with them. No, no, no. We need to have a Manasseh experience. We need to give birth to a Manasseh attitude. It's time for you to ask the Lord to erase the stings in your memory, whether you be the offender or the offended. Maybe it's from a family member. Maybe it's from a spiritual leader. Maybe it's from a teacher. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker. It's also time to give birth to an Ephraim. It's time to remember how abundantly blessed you are by God. But Ephraim here is in the plural. You are twice blessed. You're doubly blessed. You know what? It would really be good 
if our attitude was, I am blessed by God. You know, some people see the cup as half empty. Some see it as half full. Every Christian needs to see it as, my cup runneth over. Full, abundant blessings. Everyone, no matter what your trial is, your trial is but a light affliction when compared to the eternal weight of glory that shall be revealed. God has blessed us abundantly. And so maybe it's time for you to give birth to a Manasseh attitude, an Ephraim attitude. If you truly embrace God's grace, you will not hold a grudge. Some people call it aggressive grace. Some people call it reckless love. Some people call it amazing grace. God is able to take the sting of your past and overcome with waves of goodness and gratitude. In Christ, you are no longer a victim. I really, I feel sorry for people. I feel sorry for people who want to be a victim to the day of their death. Because in Jesus Christ, you're not a victim. You're a victor. Read Revelation 2 and 3. You are a victor. You are an overcomer. That's your new identity in Christ. And so how to handle prosperity. When you're promoted, humbly thank God. Use your authority to help others and not hurt them. And then you just commit yourself to stay faithful to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Joseph and the godly example that he, he leaves for us even today. And Father, now I pray. I pray for those who have been through a time of suffering and hurt. They've been a victim. They've been abused. For those who are resentful, God, I pray today they would give birth to a Manasseh attitude that you, Lord, would take the sting of the pain of their past. Oh, oh, the memory will still be there, but the sting and the pain and the anguish can be gone. You can remove it. And then for those going through times of prosperity, God, help them to use whatever they have for you to help others. With their heads bowed, with their eyes closed, if you'd say, Pastor Wendell, there was a time in my life that I became a born-again Christian. I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. It is an experience I'll never forget because now I have assurance and I know that when I die, I'll go to heaven. Not because I've been baptized, not because I do good things or give money or do sacraments, but because I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. And I have assurance that heaven is my home. If you're not ashamed to be called a Christian, you have a Bible reason that you know you're going to heaven, would you simply raise your hand all over this congregation? You may put your hands down. You're here today, you say, Pastor, I, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I'd go to heaven, but I'm not sure I have some doubts. God brought you here today or you're watching on live, right, online right now to hear the good news that God loves you, Jesus died for you, rose again, and you can become part of his family. You say, how do I do that? You call upon the name of the Lord. If you sense the Spirit of God tapping on your heart right now, pray with me. Right where you're seated, pray with me from home. Pray with me. Call upon the Lord. You can pray earnestly 
You can pray silently. God will hear your prayer. Pray with me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Please save me today. With heads bowed, with eyes closed, you'd say, Pastor, I just pray with you and I meant it. I want to say welcome to the family of God. I'd like to pray for you. Would you simply raise your hand, anyone at all? I just pray with you and meant it for my heart. Anyone at all, I pray to ask Jesus to become my Savior. If you're watching online and you pray with us, contact the church that we may help you. Now, Christian, may I ask you, is there a hurt in your life? Is there a pain from the past? Maybe you're the offender, maybe you're the offended, and you've been a victim. Would you pray to God today? Let's all stand together, heads bowed, eyes closed. Would you pray to the Lord today and ask him to give you a Manasseh attitude, that God would take away the pain, the sting of a past memory, that God would give you an Ephraim attitude, a grateful heart for the many blessings. We sing, count your blessings, name them one by one. God, fill our hearts now with gratitude as we pray. Father, we ask you to have your way in our lives. We know that when we walk in your path and your will, that you take away the pain of the past and you give us hope in the midst of the trial and you give us power to influence others for you and for Christ. Use us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. A man after God's own heart, 2 Samuel 12. Uh, we took a little bit of a pause to explain what was going on here with the word picture and then Psalm 51, but we're back into the, the thick of the story, 2 Samuel 12. Tonight we continue with the account of David and the prophet Nathan. Bible scholars believe that King David may have backslid for just about a year. He had sinned with Bathsheba. He had allowed Uriah to die in battle uh, by ordering General Joab to put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle and if need be, pull back soldiers. David then took Bathsheba as his wife, and it appeared he had not only sinned, but got away with it. But then 2 Samuel 12 begins with the Lord sending Nathan the prophet to confront him over his sin. God leads the prophet to tell David a story, a fictional account of a shepherd who had a little lamb stolen from him by a treacherous neighbor. And we call this a word picture. Nathan made his point, and once David was emotionally invested in the story because he had been a shepherd himself, thinking it was a real event, maybe in his own city of Jerusalem, David declares judgment. And he said, this wicked man will pay. Then Nathan reveals the reason that he is there and says, David, you're the man. 
David, you're the man. David confesses his sin, and this is where we're going to pick up our account of God's Word tonight. Would you please stand with me as we come to David's truth and consequences? David's truth and consequences. We'll pick it up in, in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child. And David fasted, and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth. But he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. And how will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel, came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house. When he required, they set bread before him and he did eat. <coughs> then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead... Thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now, now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No, no. I shall go to him, but he shall not. Return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that in our deepest trial, in the valley of the shadow of death, you are the shepherd of our soul. You care for us. You love us. When we're in the fog of the trial and we can't understand, we can hold on to your hand. You will carry us. So, Father, I pray you'd build our faith from the time we spend in this chapter tonight. Give us understanding of your truth, and then, God, help us. Help us to help others. I pray if there be one that knows not Christ, touch them, draw them to yourself, and then for those of us who are saved, give us a greater burden to share Christ with others before they draw their last breath. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. David's truth and consequences. Uh, 
we don't have a lot of information right here except this, this phrase where David, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Actually, two words in the Hebrew. I've sinned against the Lord. And we wonder, is his repentance real? It was absolutely real. He penned for us Psalm 32. He wrote for us Psalm 51. Psalms that would be good for all of us to read and all of us to pray. So now David faces the truth. He turned away from God. He went his own way. But after his friend and prophet Nathan came to him, he turned back to God. David faced the truth. Now he is going to face the consequences. The consequences include both grace and chastisement. You see, under Old Testament Levitical law for the Jewish people, when you committed adultery, you were to be stoned. When you murdered, you are to be stoned. If you were a witch or a sorcerer, you were to be put to death. The law was clear. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life. Don't say that there's not grace in the Old Testament. God's grace came to David's rescue. We see that in, in verse 13. The Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has forgiven your sin, and he's also forgiven the consequence, thou shalt not die. Thou shalt not die. Nathan says under Old Testament law, you deserve to die. But David, God is going to show you grace. God is going to put away your sin. God is going to forgive your sin. You will not die. That's grace. That's grace. But notice the chastisement. Nathan says, but your sin is an occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. There in verse 14. And so, as the pronouncement is made in verse 14, your baby will die. So David begins praying in verse 15. He begins praying. And David besought God, verse 16, for the child. David fasted. He went in and lay all night upon the earth. And so David prays and David fasts. He does not eat food. He waited on God. He sought God. He besought God for the child. What, what is he doing here? He's hoping for more grace. He knew he was undeserving of God's grace, and he knew that God was full of mercy and grace. Perhaps, perhaps God would extend more grace, more mercy. And so he pleads uh, with God for the life of the child. We see that repeated in, in verse 22, uh, where he said that I fasted and I wept and I prayed, maybe God would be gracious. What does this mean that he besought the Lord? Can you hear his prayer? He prayed, oh, oh Lord, I ask you for more grace. God, I ask you to alter your plan. I plead that you would spare the child. Although I do not deserve your favor, I plead with you. I ask you to be merciful. It is the sincere desire of my heart. I will accept what you do, but I ask if it would be possible that you would heal the child. He pours his heart out day after day. Seven days. David prayed like this for seven days. He prayed with a contrite heart. For seven days, David did not leave his house. For seven days, David did not eat. For seven days, he did not wash. He did not change his clothes. For seven days, he prayed. For seven days, he pleaded with God. You know, what can we learn from this? 
It's right to pour our heart out to God. No matter what his answer is, no matter what the outcome, it's good to be still. It's good to be quiet before the Lord, to be alone with God. We all have a tendency to want to be able to dump everything out before others, but some things we just need to keep between the Lord and our own hearts. Notice how the leaders came in verse 17. The elders, the leaders of his house, arose. They went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not. Neither did he eat bread with them. They said, come on, David, come on, come on. You got, you got to get up now. You got to get, up, get on your feet, and, and you need to eat something. You need to, I need to change your clothes. You need to be kingly. He said, no, I don't want to. Please leave me alone. There are times, there are times like, like Joseph where, where we just have to believe the sovereignty of God. We have to trust his promises. Well, what happened? Verse 18. Uh, verse 18. It came to pass. On the seventh day that the child died, this is the seventh day from the announcement, you're not going to die, your child is going to die, and that's what happened. Three words, the child died. The child died. You know, forgiveness is free, but it's costly. Some scholars will look at this and they'll say, well, you know, it, 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 it appears, not to read too much into it, but, but as if the baby died in his place. But there's something we can read into this, and that is another son of David, Jesus, died for you and died for me. You understand that? That's our substitute. It's the son of David. That picture we know for sure. The son of David, Jesus, died in our place. Now look at the rest of the verse of 18. Uh, it came to pass the seventh day the child died. The servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him. He would not hearken to our voice. How will he then vex himself, hurt himself, if we tell him that the child is dead? So, so David's servants, David's officials in the court, they're fearing telling him the news. Why are they afraid? They thought David would go to pieces. They thought David would fall apart. They thought David might might hurt himself. He is in such vexation of soul. He might take his own life. They think if he is doing his soul searching now and not eve eating, and, and, and what in the world will he do when he gets this really bad news? This is far from David's reaction. Remember his repentance was real? Verse 19. But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived the child was dead, and he asked, is he dead? They say, yes, he is dead. David arose, verse 20, from the earth. He washed, he anointed himself, he changed his apparel, he came to the house of the Lord, and he worshipped, and then he came to his own house, and he did eat bread. David had prayed to God for more grace for seven days, that God might spare the child. It did not happen the way he wanted. Have you ever prayed a prayer and God didn't answer it the way you wanted it to be answered? And you, you think, man, what kind of a Christian am I? Because God says in the New Testament, he says, if you will but believe, uh, you have all things according to your prayer. Ask in the will of God. Ask, seek, knock. Well, David prayed and his prayer wasn't answered the way that he wanted it answered. He quietly gets up. 
He takes a bath. He changes his clothes. He goes to the house of the Lord and, and he worships. He returns home and he eats. How did Job respond when he heard the news about the death of his seven sons and three daughters? He too worships. Job 1.20, Job arose, he rent his mantle, he shaved his head, he fell down upon the ground and he worshiped. He said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be, what? The name of the Lord. Neither man, Job or David, asks God why. Neither man says, God, why did you do this to me? How could you do this to me? God, look what you've taken from me. There's nothing like that here. Instead, David accepts what has happened. And he goes and he worships the Lord. Uh, this is a good time to remind ourselves that David is a man after God's own heart. Yes, he sinned. But yes, he loves God. There are no perfect saints this side of heaven. The servants are amazed at his response. His child has just died when most people would go to pieces and mourn. He goes to worship God. He heard the news. He cleans himself up and he worships the Lord. It really is an incredible response. It is a great example for us to follow. A contrite heart accepts God's will. A contrite heart loves God no matter what he decides or chooses or allows in my life. And yet we've all seen it. We've all seen people go through a trial, walk away from God. Oh, I can't go back to church. I can't go back to church. Well, why not? That's when you need to go the most is when you have been through an emotional trial, come to the Lord. So David, he's now going to claim the truths of the Scripture. When your crisis comes, and it will, when your crisis comes, that's the time to trust the promises of God, not your emotions. Your emotions are up and down. Your emotions will lead you away from God. Come to the Word of God. There's no comfort like God's comfort. There's no counsel like God's counsel. There's no wisdom like God's wisdom. And David believed God. David trusted God. Uh, in the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I will fear no evil. And so David settles his heart on God. He's resting in God's word. Verse 21. Then his servants said, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, uh, you did rise and eat bread. The servants are confused. So it is today. Christians suffer heartache of all kinds just like everyone else. And yes, we grieve and we mourn, but Paul said, Paul said, we do not mourn, we do not grieve the way unbelievers grieve. We sorrow, but not as others, because there's something different about us and our relationship with God. We have a peace and a confidence that God is sovereign. We have a peace and confidence. We will see our loved ones again, and so we sorrow, but with a hope that is real and sure. The servants are confused, but David is not. David gives his answer in verse 22. He says to these servants that are questioning, why would you do this? While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. 
For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And so he faced his situation. He accepts it, and he does not deny it. God's answer has come, not the answer he wanted, but no need to continue to fast. How many people grieve over the death of a loved one beyond what is healthy? How many doctors are so quick to say, hey, you just need to take these medications. This will calm you down, and this will put you to sleep, and this will wake you up. You just need medicine as you go through your grief. You know, grief is not a bad thing. Grief is a part of life. Joy and sorrow are both emotions that we experience. Grief will make you want to go to God. Grief will want to make you to, to come to your family and your church family. God uses grief to be able to, to heal and comfort our hearts when we follow uh, what is good and right. How many times unbelievers fall apart and they just lose it and they expect the same from us. They say, how can you do that? How can you go through that? We say it's because of the Lord. We have the Lord. And do you know what many do in our world? They, they go to mediums. They go to palm readers. They go to seances. You know why they do that? They do that because, uh, because unsafe people, they want to have contact. They want to communicate with people who have died. And they think somehow that will help them to have a communication with someone who has died. May I say that's demonic? That is satanic? No Christian should have any kind of contact with any of the works of darkness. You probably saw for several years the sign, the little house across from Target in Limerick on Rich, Rich Pike. It said, the palm reader. And then they, they must have been doing well because they got a new sign. It was a big, lighted palm reader sign. But if you've walked that way recently, the sign is gone. The house is for sale. The palm reader's not there anymore. And I can't help but wonder if they saw that coming. <laughs> Did they see that coming? <laughs> if they know the future, why couldn't they just bet on a lottery ticket and get enough money to keep their, their business going? You've heard me tell about the pastor walking through one of those local carnivals and the fortune teller called out, Hey, sir, sir, I'll tell you your future for $20. The pastor responded, I'll give you $100 if you tell me what I did yesterday. <laughs> Demonic, stay away from it. So where did this baby go? Where do little children go when they die? I was asked as I walked in tonight, Pastor, I just want, I have a question for you. What's a question? What happens to babies that are aborted? I said, hang on, stay in church tonight. Where do little children go when they die? When David said, I shall go to him, in those words was, was the anticipation and the joyful hope of reunion. Now, some people have tried to misinterpret this statement. Well, all he meant was, I'm going to be buried next to him in the grave. There wouldn't be any reason to say, 
He can't come to me, but oh, I'm so glad I'm going to be buried next to him. That's not a joyful statement. There'd be no joy in that. There'd be no satisfaction in that. So I think at that point, he was expressing this confidence that he was going to heaven. He knew that there would, he would find his son in heaven, the son who had died before the age of accountability. Now, the loss of a child in miscarriage, in abortion, by accident, by disease, by violence, has touched nearly every family or extended family of everyone. Everyone. And God has something to say about the destiny of these children. So let me give you some Bible truths that we know are rock solid. Number one, Bible truth one. God creates a soul at conception. When a child is conceived, God creates a living soul that will live forever somewhere. Psalm 51.5, in sin did my mother conceive me. That is, at conception I received a sin nature. Jeremiah 1, uh, Jeremiah says, I was called to be a prophet from my mother's womb. Psalm 139, uh, God says, I, I fashioned you in your mother's womb. All the details of what you're going to look like and your personality, all those things created by God. And so a baby is a, in the womb is a living soul, not a batch of cells, not a part of the mother's body. They have their own body, and their heart, is, their heart is literally beating with just in a few days. And so the proposed heartbeat law by some state representatives and federal representatives, that's, that's a good law. Pro-life is not a political issue. Pro-family is not a political issue that marriage is a man and a woman. Pro-Israel is not some foreign policy. These are Bible truths. They're, they're Bible truths. And so you, you be careful to do the best you can, and we will do our best to provide a Christian voter guide that just tells you the candidates believe this and they believe this, and then we filter not their personality, but their position. What do they believe about what the Bible teaches? Candidates who want to dodge this will not answer the question, when does life begin? But it's right here. It's right here. It's in the Word of God. Life begins at conception. And I gave you three references for that. Number two, Bible truth number two, every child is born a Psalm 51, 5, uh, Jeremiah speaks about them, um, them uh, giving lies from the womb. We, 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 we don't have to be a mom or dad very long to discover that our kids have a sin nature. You don't have to be a parent of a toddler uh, to sit down and say, now, now, now Johnny, this is how you're going to tell a lie. Susie, this is how you're going to disobey me. You don't teach them how to sin because it comes naturally. It is their nature, and every person that has a sin nature needs saving grace in order to go to heaven. Bible truth number three, infants have no record of sin. Babies in the womb, babies out of the womb, children who don't have this discernment between their left hand and their right hand to reject God, to reject truth, 
handicapped people that have impairment. Infants have no record of sin. What am I saying? At the moment of conception, the new soul has a sin nature, but in the record book of sins in Revelation 20, there are no sins recorded for the babies. You cannot have a record of sins until they are committed, and that cannot happen until a child reaches that age or condition of accountability. Revelation chapter 20. The Bible says there is a book of life, and all of, us, all of us who are born again are in the book of life. We're going to heaven. Our sins are forgiven. And then the other books are opened. What are the books? It's the record book of the sins of the people of the world. And a child or a handicapped person before this condition or age of accountability, there are no sins recorded there. God is just. God is holy, and God is righteous, and infants have no record of sin. I stand with the vast number of Bible believers that hold the position that babies who die in or out of the womb go to heaven. I believe that up until the point of, of real saving faith, God in his mercy would save that child should that child die. God doesn't charge people with actual sins until they commit them. Bible truth number four. There is an age when we are accountable. You say, Pastor, what's the age? I don't know. I don't know. There's no record of six or eight or ten or twelve or fifteen. There's no age recorded in the scriptures. There is this age from here on you are responsible and I think the reason for that, that no number is given, is, is because children mature at different paces. That would be true from culture to culture. So the Lord, in his wisdom, didn't identify a specific moment or age. God knows when each soul is accountable. God knows when there has been real rejection of the truth that has taken place when the love of sin exists in the heart god alone knows when that occurs now the jewish people uh, at the time of jesus the jewish people had identified the age of 12 uh, that was when jesus was taken by his parents to jerusalem for the passover the passover feast luke chapter 2 verses 41 42 there he's in the temple he's with the the doctors of the law you have a good illustration jesus was asking and answering these profound questions at that point another interesting thing that occurs many times in the old testament is that children including those who die are referred to as innocent innocent the hebrew word for innocent is used for to refer to those that are not being guilty literally being taken to court and found not guilty in fact the old testament refers to the babies that were passed through the fire to Molech, the false god, as, quote, the innocents. So I believe that God, prior to this, this age of accountability, treats them as innocent. So if a baby is aborted, if a baby dies in miscarriage, if a baby dies from accident or disease or violence, they're innocent. It doesn't mean that they're not fallen. It doesn't mean that they're not sinful in their nature. It does mean that God mercifully treats them as innocent, and he has to exercise grace to do that. But how are we saved? 
by grace. It's the same saving grace. Deuteronomy 1.39, Moreover, your little ones, which he said, should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. God said these, these little ones, you remember how they, they, they believed the report of the ten evil spies, and God said, okay, you're not going into the land, but your little ones, they're innocent. They're going to get to go into the land under the leadership of Joshua. The Israelite children were viewed, they were treated as innocents who didn't know good from evil. Isaiah 17, 7, 16 pictures young children who have not reached an age where they have learned to reject what is bad and choose what is good. God said to Jonah, don't you love it in Jonah chapter 4 there where he goes out under the, the tree and crosses his arm and the gourd comes up and he's shielded by the heat and, and then God doesn't bring judgment but he sends a worm and the worm kills the gourd and the gourd uh, falls over and now he's back in the sun and he's just angry. I can't believe this. And God says, Jonah, you're angry because of a, of a, of a plant that gave you shade? You're angry because you've lost that plan. Should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? And then God says to Jonah, and also much cattle. Jonah, don't you care about the cattle? <laughs> I think Jonah repented of his attitude, his sour Puss, critical attitude. You say, how, why do you think that? Well, because I went to sight and sound. And, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> because we have the book of Jonah. I think he was humble enough not to record that, but we know that he wrote it, and it shows that he got God's message. Prior to this age, children may be sinful in nature, but they've not reached a time when they can reject God and his place for them is, is heaven. Bible truth number five, one more. Babies go to heaven when they die. All children. All children who die before they reach the condition or the age of accountability by which they understand their sin and corruption and embrace the gospel by faith, they are graciously saved eternally by God through the work of Jesus Christ by God's sovereign choice. Dr. John MacArthur writes, Your child who died prior to birth, at birth, or as a child too young to grasp the distinction between good and evil, is indeed safe in the arms of God, eternally secure in his love and grace. Chuck Swindoll says of verse 23, Now there's a promise based on solid theology. If you lost an infant... This verse says you cannot bring the child back, but you will see that child in heaven. You will see that gift from God that he gave you. And for reasons known only to him, he took from you. Sadly, sadly last year, a misguided, confused, charismatic, mega church pastor in California, he called on his church to pray for a toddler that died to be resurrected from the dead while the baby's body was down at the morgue. After a week, they gave up praying and they had the funeral. 
All that did was give the world a cause to mock the Bible and the Word of God. Charismatic doctrine is not Bible doctrine. If you had a little one that died through miscarriage or sickness or accident or abortion or violence, you can have peace, and yes, you can have joy in your heart. You do not focus on your loss, but rather you focus on the eternal gain. You count not that the child is having lost, but having gained, having passed briefly this life untouched by the wicked world, only to enter the eternal glory and joy of our Savior by His grace. The true sadness, the true sadness should be over those children who live and reject the gospel. Don't sorrow over your children in heaven. Sorrow over your children, grandchildren on earth, and pray that they would come to Christ. This is your great responsibility. This is your great opportunity. I just want to challenge you. It's just a little piece of paper. There's not a lot on it. It says God's simple plan of salvation. This one says a place for you. God has a place for you and his family, and it has a few points, and it has Romans Road on it. It's just a little, little business card. If you turn it over, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Lou Lepore, Matt Turner designed this. There's a QR reader, or you can just use your camera, and you click on it, and it'll give a, a six-minute video of me sharing the gospel. It's just a, just a Veterans Day invite, inviting veterans to come out. All of these things help no one while they're in my Bible and in my pocket. But if we would be so bold... Bryson, you come here. Hey, I saw you had that military hat on. World War II? Man, you're looking really good for being a World War II veteran. <laughs> I just want you to know that uh, thank you. Thank you for your service uh, to our country. I saw that hat. And, and uh, I, you know, our church, we have a Veterans Day appreciation service. May I give this to you? Sure. Yep. Hey, take a look at that. Check your calendar. See if you're free. Uh, 9 or 10.30. We have something really cool. One of our members, he, uh, he got a World War II Jeep and he renovated it. And he's going to have it there in, um, in our church's Family Life Center. And you can bring the grandkids and get your picture taken uh, with that. And we want to honor our veterans. We want to teach patriotism to our children. And we, want, we have some gifts for you. So, so do you think you might be able to come to that? You'll be there? Hey, maybe we can put you to work. Maybe you can do some signing for us while you're here. <laughs> do you know that everybody you talk to is someone's son or daughter? And so maybe we need to put our focus on evangelism and take our focus off what the world has their focus on think what a lot of Christians have their focus on? Christians get upset over the 
pettiest things. Let's, let's, let's get God's view on this. Let's care about what God cares about. He cares about souls. And so the babies who, who don't get aborted and the babies who don't die from miscarriage, the babies who do make it through their infancy and toddlerhood and the babies who, who, who do make it to the age of accountability, Jesus says, you tell every one of them that I love them and died for them. Let's make that our focus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you that we find truth, we find comfort, we find power, we find purpose. And Lord, I thank you for David, a, a man after God's own heart, not a perfect man, but yet you forgave his sin. He faced the truth. He suffered the consequences. And we learn, we learn from him the good and the bad. So I pray tonight, I pray tonight that we will consider how you can use us to help others come to know you. That you can use us to bring comfort to those who are in their deep trials, whether it be the, the loss of an infant or the loss of a parent, the loss of a sibling, the loss of health. In whatever trial that you have helped us in our trials now to help others in theirs. So God, help us to shine your light. Help us to speak the truth in love. So God, burden our hearts this week to not be complacent, not be apathetic, and not be wrong-focused, but have the right focus and the right priority. So God, put in our path, help us to be sensitive to the prompting of the Spirit of God, even to speak to strangers and clerks, wherever we go, whatever we do, to be salt and light for you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful week serving our Savior. I'm going to ask for the Holland if he'll come and lead us in closing prayer. Flossie, could you grab one of those books and just hold it up there? I have two copies, the other one, yep, uh, Safe in the Arms of God. And so if you need this book, if you'd like to read it by Dr. John MacArthur, uh, there's two copies there. You can just pick it up. If you know someone and you think it'll be a help to them, you pick it up and go ahead and pass it on to them. We have many more copies uh, in the uh, closet and the bookshelf, and we just want to be in the place that God can use us to help others. Let's all stand together for the holland. Thank you for loving our teens, loving our church family, serving as a deacon. Thank you, Pastor. Church family, don't you love the truth that comes from this pulpit? I am so humbled to have the privilege to pray on your behalf tonight. Uh, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, how can we possibly thank you for all that you uh, give to us, all that we have shared and experienced today, um, and especially, Father, with the regathering that has been taking place, not only uh, for the last several weeks, but we're regathering in freely, uh, without any persecution, which could come at any moment. Uh, and we're able to continue to focus on the main thing. We're just so grateful. How can we possibly thank you? And this morning, the report from Brother Todd Comstock about the accreditation of the school, 
and how our students and teachers and staff are able to come and go safely each day and uh, for the school to just grow. We are so grateful. And uh, Father, the baptisms last week, uh, what an incredible new uh, event that has been after, uh, after so long an absence. And even the newly saved uh, that we're experiencing, Father, we're just so grateful. And on top of all that, the missions conference just a few weeks ago, we were able to meet the missionaries to hear about the struggles and the challenges they face and their commitment to go serve you. And, Father, that we're able to give forth of our abundance that you give to us to just encourage them to go forward. Uh, but, Father, we just love Pastor's consistency and the truth that comes from this pulpit, and he's never going to compromise on that truth. That we can be so assured of. And his reminders, even today, don't waste your trial. And uh, he's right, our cup does runneth over. And the reminders that we get from him are just so consistent. We're just so grateful. And Father, now, as we heard this morning, we're going to be meeting with upcoming prayers for our nation uh, so that we can humbly call out with sweet entreaty to you. Uh, Lord, even from, uh, to quote David tonight, who can tell whether God will be gracious to us in these prayers as we just plead you to bless our nation, uh, to, 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 to bless our president, and to, uh, that you will punish the evildoers that are just make so much noise against, uh, uh, against Christianity. And uh, we just pray for the mercy and the grace for, for, on those that love you and want to serve you, Father. Uh, tonight I want to ask uh, for, uh, on behalf of this congregation to give Matt Turner, Brother Matt Turner, a specific and uh, particular blessing of wisdom and guidance as he seeks to overturn uh, the, uh, the Facebook who has uh, brought a stop to our, uh, to our outreach. And Lord, we, uh, we know the end times are coming. It's going to bring us even more challenges. But uh, I just pray that uh, we pray that uh, Brother Matt would receive your hand of blessing and guidance this week as he, uh, as, as he attempts to lift that, uh, those sanctions that have been placed on us. Father, we love you, praise you. May all that we do and say uh, be to your glory this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.